0: This evening we're looking at Revelation and the thousand years. The passage is Revelation chapter 20. When you consider what's going on in this world with the war in Ukraine, don't know if you've been following that, the last count, about half a million young men have been killed. That's just on the Ukrainian side. Half a million men... Have been killed for what? I, I can't answer that one. And now there's war in the Middle East. Also, if you follow the news, I don't just mean the BBC, by the way, but if you follow the news, you'll, you'll know that there is a very real possibility of hostilities breaking out into another world war. This is where we're at. And there's a variety of other horrific and often catastrophic events that are taking place. Not least, the mass killing of unborn babies throughout the world. It's a very wicked world that we live in. With a lot going on. A lot of terrible things going on. And you might well wonder if we're in the last days... If we're in the end times. Never mind the fact that back in Noah's time, things were pretty bad then. For example, in Noah's time, the whole earth was filled with violence. And the imaginations of the thoughts of men's heart was evil continually. But the answer is yes, we are in the end times. I don't, I'm, I'm making no claim to be a prophet here, but I read the scriptures. We're in the end times. We have been for the past 2000 years since the Lord Jesus Christ came down from heaven as the sacrificial lamb of God. And we will continue to be in the end times until Jesus comes again in judgment. In Noah's time, God judged the earth with a flood. And when Jesus comes again at the end of the age All that are in the graves shall hear his voice And shall come forth And they that have done good unto the resurrection of life And they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation This will happen when Jesus comes again This evening's passage looks at things that must surely take place in the world until such time Jesus comes again in judgment. Obviously, it's a big subject, and all that we can hope to do this evening is look at it very briefly in the time that is available to us. First of all, the devil is bound for a thousand years We're going to look again at this. I'm going to read chapter 20 again, but in smaller chunks. First of all, we'll look again at verses 1 through to 3. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, And bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. Again, when you consider some of the terrible things that are happening in the world, you might struggle to understand how it is that the prince of this world, the devil, is bound. Because we're being told in verses 1 to 3 that he's bound in chains. He's in a pit. And if you look at verse 7, he's in a prison. How can this be with all that's happening in this world? It's far easier to understand what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 about the devil as a roaring lion walking about, seeking whom he may devour. That's a bit easier to understand, isn't it? When you consider what's going on in the world. You think of the devil walking around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Incidentally, I would say that it's the church and and Christians that he is seeking to devour. Not anyone else. Because if you're not a Christian then you are worshipping the devil anyway. Whether you realise it or not. But it's easier to understand the devil walking around like a roaring lion than being bound in chains in a pit in prison. So how are we to understand the devil being bound for a thousand years? A few weeks ago in our Sunday morning studies in Luke's Gospel, the restraining of the devil was considered. In Luke chapter 11, verse 21 and 22, Jesus said, When a strong man armed keepeth his palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he shall come upon him, and overcome him, he taketh from him all his armour wherein he trusted, and he divideth his spoils. It was seen that the devil is the strong man, the world is his palace, and the people of the world are his goods. The one who is stronger is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has already overcome (coughs) the devil. That can be seen to be the case at the cross, where Jesus tasted death for all that he came to save. At the cross... Jesus sacrificially laid down his life at the cross, and he and thereby he delivered all who trust in him. What did Jesus deliver you from, dear Christian? He delivered you from captivity to sin, to Satan, and to death. By his death on the cross, Jesus destroyed the power of him who... of him destroyed him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. That was done 2,000 years ago at the cross. Do we begin to appreciate the magnitude of what Jesus accomplished at the cross? And when he said, it is finished, and he meant it, Bearing in mind that the devil is a spirit creature, we needn't think that he is literally bound in chains. We needn't think that he is literally in a bottomless pit or in a prison. This is all symbolic language. I don't know if you've noticed, but the book of Revelation is full of symbolic language. For example, in chapter 1 of Revelation seven stars and seven golden candlesticks are spoken of Jesus actually tells us in the very last verse of chapter 1 what they represent the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven golden candlesticks are the seven churches but again it's all symbolic language Otherwise we'd understand nothing. An example, uh, an illustration that was given to me once by someone, and I think it was a fair illustration. I'm always very reluctant to give earthly illustrations. We've got plenty of illustrations in the Bible, and we can't go wrong with those. But the illustration I was given, I, th- I think it was, it's worth listening to. Imagine finding a very primitive tribe in the world and they still exist you'll find them in various places of the world tribes that have had no exposure to the things that we have today in our society how would you even begin to explain a microwave and how it operates (coughs) you'd have to use some picture language there wouldn't you to get the message across How would you explain how the electricity goes from the power station to your home, to your mud hut rather, or whatever it is you live in? You know, it goes along these reeds that are on top of trees. You've got this invisible power that's going through the reeds on the trees, finds its way into your little hut and into this thing called a microwave oven that gets very hot and you do your cooking. In that in that box And they're going to give you some pretty blank looks But You'd have to come up with something Some um, very Picture language Picture language to explain things How much more so With the things of heaven And chapter 20 Of Revelation has got a lot of Symbolic language in it Otherwise we really wouldn't understand Anything at all and by the way, what I'm going to be talking to you about tonight, it's the subject of, shall we say, discussion within the church. The view I'm going to give you isn't the view of everybody in the church. There are others, other Christians who, who hold to a different view than the one I'm going to give you tonight. So, I thought I'd give you that I'd let you know that before we go any further. But anyway, it's all symbolic language. Coming back to this evening's passage, we can see why the devil is bound. The answer is given in verse 3. That he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years be fulfilled. That's what we're told. That's easy enough to understand, isn't it? There are many churches who take the 1,000 years to be a literal time, a literal 1,000 years, during which the Lord Jesus Christ will reign on the earth with departed Christians, Christians who have died, and they will be resurrected from the dead, and they will reign with Jesus on the earth for a literal 1,000 years. In fact, they'll reign with Jesus in Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem. As compelling as that view might be, I see nothing at all in the Bible to convince me of that particular interpretation of of, of Revelation chapter 20. What I do see is the parable of the wheat and the tares. In Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus teaches that the children of the kingdom, in other words Christians, will continue to live alongside the children of the wicked one right up until the judgment at the end of the age. At which time Jesus shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into the fiery furnace. Whereas the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So there you have it in the parable of the wheat and the tares. The, the righteous living alongside the wicked throughout the age until the judgment and then the unrighteous shall be cast into a fiery furnace, as we see in Revelation chapter 20. Whereas the righteous, those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, not righteous with a righteousness of their own, but the, with the righteousness that comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their heavenly Father jesus and his apostles say nothing about him reigning in the earthly jerusalem for a thousand years sometime in the future but what i do see is the writer to the hebrew christians talking about mount sion and the heavenly jerusalem and in the epistle to the ephesians i see jesus even now highly exalted and seated at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven where he reigns and where he is head over all things to the church for the good of the church but I don't see Jesus reigning on a throne in an earthly temple, in an earthly Jerusalem I just don't see it so What is happening is that Jesus is seated on his heavenly throne, working all things out for the good of his church, I'm talking about now, and he will continue to do so until he comes again in judgment and he comes to usher in the new heavens and the new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Also, coming back to the devil being bound that means that his his activities have been severely curtailed. However, when the devil is loosed from his prison, he will be free to deceive the nations for a little season, as we're told at the, at the end of verse 3. He must be loosed for a little season. And that takes us to the next point. The devil will be loosed for a little season. Let's have a look at verses 7, 7 through to 10. I will come back to verses 4, 5 and 6 later, but for now, verse 7 through to 10. And when the thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. Having been bound and put in his prison, he will be loosed from his prison. After a thousand years are expired. Verse 8. And shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they, shall, and they went up on the breadth of the earth, and compassed the camp of the saints about, and the beloved city... And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So for a little season, the devil will be loosed from his chains, from his prison, and he will gather together the unbelieving world to attack the church and his strategy will be deception. As one might imagine, it will be an intensified time of tribulation for all who belong to Jesus. One might well ask, how will it all end? What won't happen is that there will be a mother of all battles between Jesus and the devil? Far from it. According to verses nine and ten, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night for ever and ever. Again, there's no hint of an earthly battle there. And that reminds me of what the Apostle Paul said in his second epistle to the Thessalonian Christians. Paul talked about the coming of the man of sin, otherwise known as the Antichrist. There are many Antichrists in the world now. If you've been listening to Andy and doing his series on... 1 John over the past months John warned of all the antichrists in his epistles and what characterises them is that they deny the father and they deny his son they deny that Jesus has come in the flesh I can think of many people who fit that description and maybe you can as well so there are many antichrists in the world now People who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. But in his letter to the Thessalonians, Paul talks of one who is the man of sin, the wicked one, the Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan. "...with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness in them that perish." You've got that deception again. We've got the deception in Revelation chapter 20, the devil deceiving the nations. We've got it in Thessalonians. Um, Paul speaks of the deceivableness in them that perish." when the the man of sin comes into the world because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved he says anyway we're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8 that the Lord shall have a massive battle with the man of sin it doesn't really say that actually what it does say is the Lord shall consume him with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy him with the brightness of his coming. In other words, Jesus will simply blow on the man of sin and destroy him. So, once again, there will be no great battle, at least not when the mighty God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is involved, directly involved. Thirdly, we'll look at the first resurrection spoken of in verse 5, but I'll read to you verses 4, 4 through to 6. <clears throat> and I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark, upon their foreheads or in their hands and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished this is the first resurrection blessed and holy is he that have part in the first resurrection on such the second death have no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. It's fair to say that there are many in the churches who not only believe that in time to come, there will be a literal one thousand years, during which time the devil will be bound, and Jesus will reign on the earth, in earthly Jerusalem, in a temple no less in Jerusalem, but also... As has already been said, these people believe that departed saints, departed Christians, will be resurrected from the dead, and they will reign on the earth with Jesus. Some key words that lead them to adopt that understanding are to be found in verse 6, which speak of the first resurrection. Look again at verse 6. Blessed unholy is he that have part in the first resurrection or verse 5 but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished this is the first resurrection apart from the fact that as has already been considered nowhere in the in the gospel books or anywhere else in the new testament for that matter Is there anything to even suggest that Jesus will reign for a thousand years on the earth? But also, verses 4 to 6 are about the souls of decapitated bodies. It's clearly a heavenly scene with heavenly thrones. I think the way to understand these verses is that the first resurrection refers to the souls of believers being taken up to heaven when they die. Let me just tell you what the New Testament commentator William Hendrickson said. The first resurrection is the translation of the soul from this sinful earth to God's holy heaven. It is followed at Christ's second coming by the second resurrection when the body too will be glorified. But also that second resurrection, the bodies of everyone who has ever lived will be raised up for the, for the judgment. Those who are in the graves, they will hear the voice of the Son of Man and and they will rise up. Those who have done good, they will rise up to everlasting life. Those who have done evil will rise up to damnation, everlasting damnation. Jesus tells us that in John chapter 5. But anyway, the the first resurrection spoken of in verses 5 and 6 here, it would seem to, refer to the, the, the translation of the souls of believers to heaven, where Jesus now is. Where Jesus sits on the throne of God, seated at the right hand of his heavenly Father. Fourthly, the day of judgment. Despite all that is going on in the world, and the world's hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ... And the world's hatred of his church. There is still much liberty to proclaim the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. This is happening in our time, with souls being added to the church daily. For example, those of you who were able to make it last Wednesday to the missionary meeting in Onken... Would have been encouraged to see how the gospel is reaching even isolated people in Mongolia. And how encouraging that is. To see the gospel still reaching far and wide across this world. Even in the times that we live in. And it's all happening in accordance with and fulfilment of instructions given by the Lord Jesus Christ after he rose from the dead. He said to his disciples, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptised shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Also, we're seeing the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecies, such as Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6, where Isaiah spoke over 700 years before the Lord Jesus Christ come into the world and he spoke he was the mouthpiece of God and God in, in the prophecy of Isaiah God says to his Christ it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel this is speaking of the remnant of Israel. There's been a remnant in national Israel throughout their history, a remnant that would in due time be graciously saved through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me just say that again. It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. And in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ, describing himself as a rock, said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. However, the day will most surely come for gospel blessings to come to an end. Today is the day of grace, and if you're not trusting in Jesus, I call on you to repent and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Saviour from sin. One day, we don't know when it is, I don't know, none of us know, one day the gospel blessings will come to an end, that will happen when King Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead. Let's have a look at verses 11 through to 15. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Verse 11 there, I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it. And then in verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. This is him who sits on that great throne. Who do you think that is? It's Jesus. All judgment has been given to the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus who came into this world to save sinners. Jesus who was nailed to a cross and lifted up to die, bearing away the sins of all who would ever trust in him. This same Jesus is coming again, the Son of the living God. And he's coming in judgment to judge the living and the dead all who have ever lived praise be to the God of mercy and grace that all of you who are in Christ trusting in him as repentant sinners will have not one sin no matter how big that sin is against your name when when King Jesus the judge of all the earth judges everyone according to their works Yet you, dear Christian, will not not have one sin against your name. Praise God, because the blood of Jesus Christ, the righteous judge, has cleansed you from all your sins. Praise God that he has clothed you in the garments of salvation, and he has adorned you, not with your own filthy rags of righteousness, but he has adorned you with the robe of righteousness of the lord jesus christ who was obedient throughout his earthly sojourn from the cradle to the grave he w- he became obedient unto death even the death of the cross and that obedience is yours it's credited to your account you're accepted You're accepted by God In his beloved son The Lord Jesus Christ You know another poor illustration perhaps But I'm going to do it all the same I hope I don't ruin it But imagine standing before the throne of God How can we imagine that But try anyway Two people there One of them justifying himself before God I didn't swear too often I didn't tell too many lies. Well, that's a big lie for a kick-off. <laughs> you know, I didn't do this. I was really good. I fed the neighbour's cat when she went on holiday and uh, I tried to behave myself. Didn't always succeed, mind you, but there was a lot worse than me. What about those paedophiles? And what about this? What about the other? And, uh, and so on and so on. And then the other one, justifying what... He, he simply says... Because the Lord Jesus Christ Laid down his life Bearing away my filthy sins Every single one of them Speaks for itself doesn't it And you dear Christian You're someone who will not have One sin against your name Because you're because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ not so much because of your faith but because of the one that you are trusting in Jesus who loved you and who gave himself for you at the cross having lived that perfectly sinless life and then he rose from the dead on the third day and the life you now live is an everlasting life in him it's all about Jesus from start to finish finally we've already looked at the first resurrection which refers to the souls of martyrs those who were beheaded and beyond that we can extend that to all dead all the dead in Christ being taken up to heaven all those who are truly born again and have a testimony and who Of, of their, of the Lord Jesus Christ and His love for them. (coughs) And so the first resurrection refers to all dead saints who have gone up to be with Jesus where they reign with Him throughout the thousand years. If just, uh, I'm just gonna flip over to chapter one. You'll see what I mean there. I don't know, you've got these people who are waiting for Jesus to come back as king. Let me tell you something, Jesus is king now. And if you're a Christian, you have been transferred from the devil's dark domain into the kingdom of Christ. Look at chapter 1 of Revelation and, where is it now? Ah yeah, verse 6. Or no, start at verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, this is Jesus, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and have made us kings, or made us a kingdom and priests, you can read that as kings and priests, or a kingdom of priests, unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. This was words of encouragement to the first century church that was being, that was going through terrible tribulation even back then. And it's an encouragement to Christians now that we, by the grace of God, are a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood no less. So, what you need to understand is that reign with Jesus is something that is happening right now. Reigning with him throughout the thousand years, it's happening now, what we're reading in these verses. But also you need to understand that there will be a second death, which is referred to in verse 14. You see that in verse 14. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And also look at verse 15. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Let me tell you something. We will all die once. I I guess you've worked that one out for yourself. We're all going to die unless, of course, Jesus comes first in judgment and then when Jesus does come you will be judged and you who have died you have died let's say you've been dead in your grave for a hundred years Jesus comes again in judgment and all that are in the graves will be raised up for that judgment then you will die again. What's it called there? The second death in verse 14. You will die that second death and you will be cast into the lake of fire unless you are written in the book of life according to these verses. And by the way, the second death does not mean annihilation. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, when you're dead, you're dead. I think I used to say that as well before I became a Christian. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be good? If when you die, that's the end of it. Lights out, end of story. That's not how it is though. That's not how I'm reading these verses. It's not annihilation. That wouldn't be such a bad thing. What it does mean, the second death, is everlasting punishment because of your transgressions against God's commandments your rebellion against a holy and righteous God the big question for you must surely be how can I possibly know if I am written in the book of life because it's very different for those who are written in the book of life The, the, book of, the ones who are the, written in the book of life, they are, these are the ones who will go to everlasting blessings. How can you know it if you are written in the book of life? Can you know it? In this lifetime now, can you actually know if your name is written in the book of life? You can, and you can know with certainty that you are written in the book of life, that you are graven upon the palms of those nail-pierced hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are someone who believes that the life you now live in the flesh, you live by faith of the Son of God who loved you, and who gave himself for you after living in obedience to God's purpose. God's laws, Jesus, as I've already said, he became obedient unto death, having lived a perfectly sinless life if you believe if you believe in a repentant heart, that all that was for you that Jesus did those things for you, never mind anyone else but for you that he loved you, that he gave himself for you at the cross then you can know that your name is in the book of life we can argue and uh, debate about the the meaning then as i say there are various views which are too complicated to go into on chapter 20 of revelation but one thing is is clear as daylight here there is a second death and Those whose names are not written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. That is everyone whose name is not written in the book of life. The way to know that you are written in the book of life is by trusting in Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus said, Speaking as a shepherd, he said, My sheep, I hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give unto them everlasting life. Not one of them shall perish. He talks about his sheep being safe in his hand and safe in his father's hand. Safe and double safe. These are the people whose names are written in the book of life. As I finish, I can say no more than what I've already said. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Amen.